When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for just $5 a month. We currently have bonus episodes in the works on The Creator, a film we came this close to covering on the podcast, and Tasha's Adventures at Fantastic Fest. And there's more to come, especially with fall movie season finally heating up. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tosh Robinson. And Scott Tobias. Genevieve Kosky, our usual co-host, is currently on what she describes as a walkabout with hunting in Australia. We hope she returns soon. That leaves just three of the usual hosts of this week, but like the mighty kangaroo that balances itself on a pair of muscular hind legs and a powerful tail, I trust we will find a balance for these next two episodes. Uh, how's everyone doing? In, in this analogy, who's the tail and who are the I, legs? I was, I was literally thinking the second he's done with this, I'm going to say dibs on being the tail. As long as nobody's the testicles, we, we found out in Wake and Fright that uh, being kangaroo testicles is just not a, a good place to be in life, even metaphorical ones. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because this week we're traveling to the island continent of Australia for a pair of, you want to call them adventure movies? Is that the right term? Tasha, can you tell us about our movies? I cannot tell you about uh, our adventures. I'll tell you that. Director Kitty Green has been on the next picture show radar since her 2019 film, The Assistant. So we eagerly checked out her latest, The Royal Hotel. Like The Assistant, The Royal Hotel stars Julia Garner as a woman in a dangerous male-dominated environment, albeit one far removed from the film production offices of that previous film. Here, Garner plays Hannah, an American backpacker traveling Australia with her friend Liv, played by Julia Henwick. When they run out of money, the pair take a job at The Royal Hotel, an outback pub in the middle of nowhere that caters to a rough-and-tumble mining crowd. Hannah and Liv's immersion in the culture in Australian mining town reminded us of Wake and Fright, a 1971 film directed by Ted Kotcheff, about a schoolteacher unexpectedly thrown into an extended, possibly transformative stay in the outback town of Bundanyaba, affectionately known to the locals as the Yaba. So this week, we'll revisit an Australian cult classic, then we'll stick around for a more recent look at life on the fringes of civilization. We'll be right back after the break. Yes. Staying long? Yeah, just tonight. Oh, that's hard luck. Want to see a bit more of the yabba than that. It's not always clear where the line between hospitality ends and hostility begins in the yabba. 
the outback mining community that was supposed to serve as a one-night stand for John Grant, played by Peter Bond, on his way back to Sydney for the Christmas holidays in Wake and Fright. A schoolteacher paying off a government loan by teaching at a remote community not far from the Yaba, he's no stranger to the outback. But the Yaba is a different sort of place from the quiet town where he lives in isolated existence in a shabby apartment. It has a bustling nightlife built around a pub where drinks pour freely, and it has an assortment of other recreational activities, including illegal games of two-up, a simple but thrilling game of chance built around the outcome of coin tosses. Succumbing to its temptations, John wins big and takes off with his earnings. Then he goes back and loses it all. Then his journey through the Yaba truly begins. Wake and Fright is a film driven more by incident than plot, though it has a clear trajectory, and that's downward. With only pennies to his name, John has to depend on the kindness of strangers, and the Yaba offers no shortage of this in its way. He's taken in by a local named Tim and pursued by Tim's daughter, Jeanette, played by director Ketchoff's wife, the English character actress, Sylvia Kay. He's paid particular attention to by the town's alcoholic doctor, Doc, played by Donald Plaisance, who draws him into a booze-fueled kangaroo hunting party with a pair of locals. Although the descriptors alcoholic and booze-fueled could probably be applied to most of the residents of the Yaba. John begins his visit looking down on the locals, then debases himself to the point where he has nowhere to look but up. Like its near-contemporary Straw Dogs, another touchstone for the Royal Hotel, Wake and Fright depicts civilization as a pretension created to mask the essential bestiality of humanity. In one telling moment, John discards a stack of books that includes Plato. But where Straw Dogs is fueled by misanthropy, Wake and Fright treats this revelation differently. Despite piling one disturbing, often disgusting moment on top of another, the film ultimately settles for kind of a shrug. John leaves the Yaba with some hard-earned knowledge about himself and the rest of the world, then resumes his old life. Maybe, after discovering how low you can sink and what's at the bottom when you get there, the only thing to do is carry on. Will you have a drink? No, I'm toying with this one, thanks. Well, drink it down or buy another. Look, I'm flat broke and I can't afford to drink. What's that going to do with that man? I said I'd buy you a drink. You don't have to buy me one. Now drink it down. So I think the key quote for Wake and Fright belongs to the first scene featuring Donald Pleasance's Doc, where he says, All the little devils are proud of hell. All the repulsion for the Yaba comes from the outsiders like John, and to a lesser extent, Doc, who's almost gone entirely native. Is it possibly they're the abnormal ones in this in this movie? I guess define your terms when you say abnormal. I mean, they're certainly yeah. the abnormal ones in this environment. And that's sort of what the movie is about is, you know, normality is a question of locality, is just sort of a question of, you know, when in Rome. They certainly stand out in this, in, in the environment of the Yaba, uh, which I could not hear during this movie without chuckling a little bit. But they're pretty far removed from what, you know, we personally might think of as a civilization. Polite society. We we live in a society, Keith. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're they're part of a subculture, a very specific subculture that is, I think, designed to feel pretty alarming. But one of the things that's most fascinating about this movie is watching somebody who's repulsed by it get drawn into it, see the appeal of it, and then look at himself and the things that he's done and go back to being repulsed by it. 
Does he get go back to being repulsed by it? Oh, I think unquestionably. When he wakes up the day after the, the kangaroo hunt, the day after the, the big fist fight, yeah, uh-huh. he seems extremely repulsed by himself, by Doc, by the, the place he's found himself. At that point, yeah. But I, one thing I find so interesting about the movie is the way it kind of ends on a, on, a, uh, on a kind of a note of acceptance, where he kind of comes to recognize that he's, you know, what his experience has kind of taught him something in a way. Does it? I guess I took that last line as some combination of irony and not wanting to admit to what he'd done and what he'd become. Mm. Like, I I took it as a lie. Hmm. Boy, wow. Yeah. See, I don't, I don't, I disagree. I feel like, I feel like he comes out of the the experience a changed man and, and, and approaches this environment that he had previously detested uh, with a certain amount of humility and acceptance. I don't think there's, there's just kind of a different attitude that he has, I think, uh, coming back to this place where in the beginning of the film, he just, I mean, he's literally watching the clock. He can't wait to get out of there. Um, I think, I think things shift a little bit. Um, He gets a little bit of perspective by spending uh, the time that he does in in the Yaba. (laughs) No, Scott, I I agree with you that he comes out of the experience a changed man, that that he's humbled, that he looks at his, his job and his life differently. I just don't take that last line as sincere in terms of him having like loved his experience when when he says you know that the the vacation was the best i (laughs) don't believe him i i think he's saving face in a way sort of you know pretending because he has this whole pretense of being he wants to be in england and he wants to come across as kind of the the prim put together english school teacher and i think he kind of redons that costume at the end of the movie I think you're exactly right about where he is mentally and emotionally at that point, but I don't think that he's looking back on his experiences with the fondness that he he says he is <laughs> or that he pretends to. Yeah, maybe not. Uh, maybe not. But there is a humility. I mean, I think there's kind of a, he does, he's lost all the arrogance that he brought into that situation. All of that is gone now. And I, and I think he cannot really, you know, this, this person who, who he sees at the end of of the movie who, who who had sort of been tending bar and tending to that whatever building that is uh the beginning of the film i think he relates to him in a different way see see he, he kind of under understand he, i think he just ha- has a has kind of a better idea of you know w- what it means to be in in a place like uh, tabunda and, and i think there's kind of a comfort level there i don't think there's a it, there's an agitation to it I, you know when you get to that point where he's like dropped off in town and that town ends up being all the way back into the yaba his reaction is not one of horror necessarily maybe a certain amount of annoyance but there's kind of a more acceptance of that place and of that situation and, and and kind of he let go of his ideas of what his life was going to be in sydney with this woman who he just kind of know in his dreams or in his fantasies uh in his swimsuit like all of that is gone and um he's achieved a certain amount of peace after having gone through all of that but uh all of that was covered you know keith covered that in the keynote but i i, I want to kind of go back to that all the devils are proud of hell line because it, it stuck out for me as well and it's it, what, what was interesting to me in that context was like at that moment john recognizes doc as somebody who who is perhaps like him you know finally somebody who actually kind of gets gets it and is not is not one of the lunatics who actually is uh 
native of of the Yabba who kind of who, who sees these people as being ridiculous and savage and all these other things. But of course, you know, once we get to know Doc, you know, we can see that he's almost found a place that's you know accommodated the person he was going into it. That he was this you know intellectual doctor with raging alcoholism who has found this place where nobody kind of notices the, <laughs> notices that part of his personality and then he fits in a little bit better. I think that's, I don't know, he's a fascinating character. I, I think one of the things that's really interesting about the interplay between Grant and Doc is the sense that Grant seems to think of himself as somebody who's too good for the life he's living, you know, somebody who's above it all. And when he meets Doc, he has a moment of kind of thinking, are you, are you like me? And he kind of finds out that Doc is doing the better than you and above it all thing better than he is. He's hmm. able to maintain more or remove. He's able to just kind of shop around and, and pick the things he wants. Like, you know, experimental, no strings attached sex with uh, like the local harlot who he does not see as a harlot, you know, who he appreciates in ways that other people don't. The ability to drink however much he wants and not be socially punished for it but he still kind of stands out from everybody else whereas grant falls into it you know he he falls into the gambling gives himself over to it regrets it hates himself turns around and like falls in socially with once some of these people and does the things they do and then turns around and, and hates himself whereas doc just kind of has achieved a balance and, and is cruising along I, I think one of the things troubling grant in all of this is that he sees a sort of reflection of himself in doc that isn't the the initial attempted recognition of someone like him but he actually sees somebody who's doing what he does in a in a far superior and more comfortable way than he is somebody who knows who he is whereas i don't think grant knows who he is and i think he's negotiating it throughout this movie yeah it's interesting too how accepted doc has become and pretty much how easily grant is accepted in, into into it as as well i mean i felt i think some of the tension early on is like are these people having him on are these people like kind of uh making fun of the the, the newbie and they, they kind of are but also they're not going to pull the rug out from from under him as long as he plays along with their their way of living he's one of them it's it, it's a really fascinating um dynamic that way well he's kind of like almost indoctrinated more mm-hmm. more than accepted he's you know and i mean i think it starts with with jock who's just a, another incredible character in performance by let me get the actor here it's uh chips rafferty plays uh plays jock he's a he's a tall imposing man and there's kind of who i think embodies a certain type that the film is really kind of getting at which is which is um toxic hospitality or i i can't remember there's actually a word in the the film it's actually vocalized in the film it's something hospitality but it's like that it's like somebody who 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 is uh gregarious and buying you drinks and this sort of thing but there's also something overwhelming and insidious about about it as well i mean the fact that that, you know the the buying drinks part becomes like him having to just complete to to drink a the jug of beer like it has to be just you know he's not going to get away with like sipping a beer he's got to just pound beer after beer after beer and they're just well the next drink is ordered before the first one's completed i mean right (laughs) you make sure there's a steady supply and then it's just it is jock could not be less 
patient uh with with the pace at which john drinks a beer it's just like come on man are we really doing this are you just gonna drink it like a normal person you just got to really let that let that come down so there's i think there's something kind of you know important about about that you know uh, it's like it's and, and i think it is about like showing him the ropes at that moment of, of jock immediately recognizing that that john is an outsider and rather than reject him he's he's gonna he's gonna either you could say indoctrinate him or you could even say test him is he going to be open is he going to be up for this experience you know you know if if he's if he's he's an outsider is he going to be able to fit in or not and uh i'm going to test him and see see what what he's made of uh and that that happens instantly and the thing that's that i find kind of like darkly funny about the film is just how easily John is drawn into something so primal and almost stupid. I mean, like the gambling is just, it's the dumbest game. It's the <laughs> flipping coins. I mean, I it's the ask, dumbest thing you've ever seen. Scott, you're a gambling man. Uh, can you yeah. explain the appeal of two up? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, it's just, it's, just, it, it's like, it's like if roulette is too complex <laughs> and nuanced for you, you have to just go flip, flip coins. You flip two coins. So if they contradict each other, then you, you, you have to flip them again, but that's literally just betting on a coin flip which is it just a crazy and dumb thing to do uh, that somebody like John who sees himself as potentially you know, an intellectual, somebody who's better than these, these louts gets drawn into so, so easily and, and to the point where he, one night he loses all but $1 of his, his money. So uh, it's incredible how, how quickly he slides. I feel like the appeal of two up is that for, for one thing, you can do it all damn night and all damn week. You know, if you place $100 on heads or tails in every coin flip, the law of averages say if you have enough money and you keep it going long enough, you're just putting your money down, picking it back up throughout the whole night. So, you know, it's not like <laughs> like poker where the most skilled players at the table are just gradually mm. going to fleece you. It's not like right. blackjack where the house is, uh, you know, has the advantage at all times. It's just straight up flip a coin, I take all your money, flip the coin again, you take all my money. And they can get all the the excitement of gambling without on average, you know, somebody's going to be bust and somebody's going to be flush at the end of the night. But for the most part, I think a lot of those men are just handing each other money back and forth. And maybe that's why everybody is so cavalier about, you know, just not not freaking out at a loss, not lying or blaming anybody else. They just put their money down and they pick it back up. Mm. Because it's it's a pretty even game as odds go. I think it fits into the scheme of the film too, in which you know this is a place where everything's stripped down to its most primal elements. This is, this is just this is gambling in its simplest form, just as uh, much of much of the rest of the life there is. It's it's you know it's drinking, eating the most basic food, and, and kill, killing things and breaking things. We should talk about the specific setting of this, which which is Australia, and the film played America as outback. I think it played Europe as Wake and Fright, or, or you know, translated as Wake and Fright. Uh, according to an article in the Guardian, it played Australia for one week in Sydney and Brisbane, and then kind of disappeared. There are sort of reports; it's, it sounds apocryphal, but who knows? Uh, of audiences responding with "with that's not us" to a depiction <laughs> of Australia. But but how much she see this as a commentary on the country itself? And how much just kind of a 
philosophical examination of humanity. I think I think again, you know, not not to, not to bring up straw dogs, which is you know that's a can of worms to open, but straw dogs is similarly like about Cornwall, but it's also not just about Cornwall. That's, that's kind of my thoughts on this. What, what mm. about what about you guys? I did a bunch of reading about the book that it was based on by Kenneth Cook, and he was a journalist who spent a bunch of time in rural Australia, and apparently the book was very, very heavily autobiographical about places mm. he'd been and the things that he'd seen and experienced and was horrified by. You know, I, I think a lot of the Grant character is him as a more educated man coming into some of these places seeing himself as an outsider and responding to what he saw as an outsider. So he was apparently, when the the book came out and did well, he was very reticent about talking about it for a long time because he kind of thought people might come beat him to death for <laughs> writing about them and their lifestyles this way. And he very slowly started to uh, engage with the degree to which he was just, you know, putting down his own experiences and and sights and, and things that he'd uh, he'd lived through into a book. So I don't think of this as a book about Australia. You know, Australia is huge. It, it's like it's like saying you know a book about America. Plenty of books have been written about you know America and what it is and what it means. But in the end, America is still like a thousand different subcultures and different very specific places. And I think that's true here. I, I think this is a book about a specific kind of rural experience more than about Australia. But it, it also works really, really well as a, a metaphor. I kept thinking at different points, this is like Lord of the Flies, except the instead of kids, we have grownups. And instead of absent grownups, we just have absent moral authority. And I think in the same way as uh, Lord of the Flies, it can work both as a kind of a specific book about a, a culture and a people, and as just like a big broad metaphor. Yeah, well, I wonder how much of a chord it, it struck just by puncturing the mythology of the country itself, or, or what it likes, what Australians might want to tell themselves about hospitable folks who live in the outback you know i mean i, I think because i think this tends to be something analogous to that in all you know countries of just of kind of understanding people who live in you know more rural you know settings as being uh down to earth and friendly and approachable in a way that that arrogant big city types are not and it kind of i mean it does kind of play with those tensions this movie and i you know i think about i think about you know other examples of this of like of a film like hot fuzz for example which kind of punctures this idea of you know the quaint crime-free you know small town that is in fact you know full of uh murder and other sort of dark mysteries it was just a way of kind of like touching that third rail in a way of uh how a, a country likes to you know imagine it's sort of country folk it's interesting contrast too because the novel as you said is written by an australian drawing on his own experiences uh the director takechoff is canadian and has a baffling career that includes everything from first blood to weekend at bernie's um, <laughs> and then the, the writer is uh, uh screenwriter is evan evan jones who is uh, an anglo-jamaican and who had never been to australia uh he did later adopt T.H. Lawrence's um, Australian set novel *Kangaroo*, uh, *Pleasance* and and Bond and 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 Bond were were English. 
there's a lot of outsiders in, to the story. Do you, do you sense that? Do you think it benefits from that? Or if, if you didn't know better, would you assume this was all? these were all Native Australians? I mean, I wouldn't assume Donald Pleasance was a Native. It's just hard to not recognize him. But yeah, I, I agree with what Scott's saying. I certainly, I certainly yeah. don't have that feeling of why are all the bad guys in Star Wars from Britain on Earth? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a, you know, it feels like the film has been, you know, obviously it was, was rejected and nearly lost uh, when it came out, but it feels like it's been wholly embraced now. Mm-hmm as kind of this weird piece of the of the Australian new wave it was certainly as part of the hospitalization tradition as being kind of a fully Australian movie even though it's kind of not in terms of the way it was uh pieced together by non a lot of a lot of non-Australians I wonder if part of that is just the distance of time I I think it's much easier to look at a movie like this that was not made during your time and say oh yes that's how that's how they used to be as opposed to this is how we are now it's just so persuasive though you know like however it was put together who was whoever was involved in making it if you just watch the movie the texture of it the the the, the way people look the way locations look the nature of the the dialogue in the action of the film all of it just feels so authentic in a way it doesn't feel like it does this does not feel like some sort of dressed up fantasy of what australia's uh, what what this piece of australia is like it feels so so hyper real i do not know how much production design was involved in this probably more than you'd assume i i know the one scene toward the end where he's just walking where, where grant's just walking the streets of the yaba it looks more like a normal town, I guess, if that's the right word. It's daylight. Everyone's hungover. Yeah, yeah. But but I mean, those those huge pubs and, and the hall with the two-up game and, and the dining area, I, those don't those look like found spots to me, mm-hmm. especially the pub. So I think there's there's a certain amount of verisimilitude uh, for for what that place was like at the time. Uh, it's actually filmed in, in Broken Hill, Australia, which, you know, to give you a sense of how Australia works, I um, I did, did like a little thing, uh, a little search while we were talking here. Like, it's, it looks like fairly close to the map to Adelaide, but if you do the uh the direction the the drive there is actually almost six hours (laughs) um despite that that appearance from where it's six hours from adelaide yeah even though they're fairly close to each other on on the map yeah so it was was shot in broken hill which which is also the inspiration for it right tasha i mean you've read a little bit more about about the novel yeah that was apparently the town that uh, kenneth cook spent a bunch of time in and based it on i hadn't realized it was actually shot there that does sort of suggest that these might in fact be found places although i suspect that the bar that everybody just kind of trashes in the midst of a fit fist fight uh towards mm-hmm. the third act Th- that might have been a set that's that's true so let's another australian aspect of this here's here's my history with this film uh i had a i've had a blu-ray of this like just staring at me daring me to watch it for about a decade since, yeah, since it was and me badgering released. you for that yeah, long I know, too and, and scott's been talking about it too but I'll, I'll tell you exactly what kept me away which is which was i knew there were real scenes of kangaroo slaughter in this in this film and like okay i i'll detach myself i'll watch this and then we get a scene of the kangaroo hunt during the daytime it's not good you know it's not good there's some definitely some real life kangaroo uh killing going on like okay well that's that's fine 
And then we get what must be 20 minutes of nighttime graphic nighttime kangaroo slaughter, kangaroo wrestling, kangaroo stabbing, some of which I think is simulated. But the actual hunting scenes are films of a, of a, of a actual kangaroo hunt. We can get into the ethics of that and probably should a little bit. Uh, I'll say at this point that, that kangaroo hunting is legal in Australia. It's apparently become controversial, as one might expect over the, over the years. But just, I will say, taking out like the ethics of it, it is an incredibly powerful sequence of of, of filmmaking. Uh, like uh, watching the main character's descent into this brutality, the the expressions of the faces of characters who are this is the greatest joy that could possibly be experienced is getting drunk and and killing killing ruse uh i don't know what do you guys think of it <laughs> what did you guys well, think of it oh, what did you guys think of the kangaroo killing <laughs> I, mean, I think it's spectacular i mean like i think that whole section of the film is the film i mean i feel like that i think it's extraordinary that moment where john against doc's advice grapples with the kangaroo himself is so it's such an important part of the movie you know uh i mean uh, men would rather drunkenly stab baby kangaroos than go to go to therapy am i right not only are you right i want that on a t-shirt yeah um so yeah that just takes it to a whole another level and i I think doc is somehow in that moment uh has the wisdom to, to 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 realize that that there's kind of this, like almost this point of no return if you're going to if you're going to go quite, quite that far uh, and, uh, and take on a you know a baby kangaroo in hand to hand combat but but just it was just with the way that whole sequence is shot too um, that it, it's so messy it's so it's so haphazard and drunk and 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 gross and just it's just it really kind of gets into what's great about the movie, which is that it, you, as an audience member, you really feel the savagery, you know, you really feel that those, these base primitive emotions, like, like men being men and they're, you know, in their absolute like purest form. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's incredible to watch. Uh, uh, I mean, I know, I know gross, of course, gross. I mean, men being men in their purest form, that is not a good, not a good thing to be around, but like, the filmmaking is exceptional uh and uh you know it's just one of those sequences that you're just you're never gonna forget <laughs> after you see it so uh, i i i do i uh, think it's pretty amazing w- w- with the qualifier that ethically it may be dubious uh, yeah i mean it's, I mean, it's chaotic uh, there's it's, a disclaimer at the end keith well that's i was i was gonna bring that up i was curious whether i i mean assume it's like officially part of the film and we all got the same disclaimer as opposed to it being like an addition thing but essentially there's a, a, a black screen that says that the footage was shot during a licensed kangaroo hunt and that uh, the filmmakers like consulted with local wildlife authorities because they wanted to put this on film because the Australian kangaroo was endangered. And I I had, I ended up with a lot of questions out of this disclaimer. Uh, Mostly if the kangaroo is so endangered, why are there licensed uh, kangaroo slaughterers allowed to just go out and commit this kind of like wholesale? There are apparently whole strands of, there's some different strands of kangaroos, some of which are cold, so they don't overrun the rest of the other population. It's a whole complicated thing. I I, I read a short article about it um, uh, that also touched on the use of kangaroo leather, 
which is more common than you'd think even here in America. Man, it gets a lot harder to use that kangaroo leather after you've let some like neophyte go out there with a knife and just like poke a kangaroo full of holes. Yeah. All right. So here's where I am. I, I'm really staunchly against hurting animals for entertainment in any form whatsoever. I, I, I it makes, it makes a film like this, uh, you know, torture. Uh, I just, you know, uh, t- to me in some ways, but it also just like beyond like my visceral reaction to it. It's, it's, I, I, I have fairly strong feelings about, it. and I don't want to just quote Wikipedia, but, but the source of the site on Wikipedia is, is uh, from a dead website, but apparently the, the hunters were going crazy and uh, there were, it was turning into a lot of like badly wounded kangaroo staggering around half dead uh, and the crew apparently uh faked a power failure to call it wow. um, but i don't know i mean i have complicated feelings i think it's an amazing sequence too i've just you know it, it repulses me on on both an ethical and a, and a physical level so wait in the in in whatever you read in that regard is is the implication that it went crazy because the the hunters were like playing it up for the cameras or you know wanted to wanted to show off for the cameras I suspect it was, you know, as the disclaimer says, it was an actual hunt that was filmed, but also that the hunt was um, not necessarily the most humane um, hunting of kangaroos imaginable. That's wild. It just it speaks to, you know, everything that we've ever heard about the ethics of uh, like documentary filmmaking and the the degree to which it's just it's impossible to not be present for documentary filmmaking and, and therefore potentially changing what you're attempting to document the idea that they wanted footage of real kangaroos really being killed and possibly unintentionally enabled the the slaughter that goes on here just the really disturbing imagery of it is that's just that's a lot to contend with <laughs> is it extra textual scott can we just, just dismiss it as extra textual and and uh not worry about well, it I mean, yeah i don't know i mean i'm just thinking like i'm just wondering if if professional kangaroo hunters uh actually hunt kangaroos in this way in, in driving in their cars super drunk shooting the rifles at out the car windows that's kind of how it goes flopping over uh, each other like, like well maybe, maybe that maybe we are witnessing what what counts for professional uh kangaroo hunting if that's what, what ultimately occurred in the making of this movie to step away from the 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 blood and the death and the chaos of it all there's a lot of really interesting stuff that happens in that scene that's like a Jaws level exploration of men challenging each other, accepting each other, othering each other, and, you know, acting out in order to impress each other. There's just, there's a lot psychologically going on in that scene, specifically between Doc and John and the the other members of their party in terms of... The way one of them goes in and wrestles with the kangaroo and then slits its throat kind of is a display of, of dominance and and strength and everybody eggs him on the way John like wants that kind of credibility for himself, that kind of admiration for himself. And so he does this extremely awkward and, and kind of pathetic like wrestle stab thing with a much smaller kangaroo the way doc kind of like analytically watches him and then congratulates him under his breath for not so much i think conquering a kangaroo as committing to the act as opposed to trying to hold himself outside the hunt and and look down on it 
there's a lot of different kind of threads of masculinity and masculine behavior going on in that sequence that I think maybe the whole thing is easier to take if you're looking at it as a series of reveals about all of these characters and how they interact. We're talking a lot about a lot of masculine energy uh, in this film, and we'll, we'll definitely continue to talk about it. But we should talk about the uh, most prominent female character, that's Jeanette, who is the daughter of Tim, the man who first uh, takes a, a John Grant. And uh, two things coming on here. I, I assumed that Jeanette was his wife because that's she is presented as a very have a lot of hard years on her, but she is his daughter. And the other thing is the actress playing her. I've, I've looked up other other uh, pictures of her, uh, very uh, put together, sophisticated, uh, very attractive woman. Also, the director's wife, mm-hmm. who they divorced him almost immediately after this. Uh, I don't know. I don't think you can draw a line there or not. But let's. let's, let's she's a fascinating character. What, what do you What do you make of Jeanette? You know. About all I knew going into this film was that Scott had repeatedly said it was a a grueling, difficult watch, which, you know, coming from Scott, whose favorite film in the world is Audition, had me really (laughs) nervous. And then I knew that there was traumatic stuff involving kangaroos and a rape. So from the moment Jeanette appeared on screen, I was nervous for her. And I wound up really surprised at how satisfied I was with her character and her place in this movie, with the sense of power that she has in this all-male environment, with a sense of kind of, you know, she she is very obviously seems to be like trapped in an environment full of yahoos that don't really talk to women or, or think of them as people. Well, the, the piece that I read had a lot to say about women at the time in these like all male environments and how because men couldn't have relationships with women for the most part on average because there were so few of them they had to do all of their bonding like man to man but that resulted in a very no homo no homo kind of environment where a lot of men were taking were you know having sexual encounters with each other but also being very leery of seeing being being seen as somebody who enjoyed that kind of thing so the the implication being that Jeanette is a woman in a place that doesn't have a lot of women but also has a lot of men that don't have any idea how to talk to or relate to women which is why as soon as Grant starts talking to her like she's a person she takes him aside and and attempts to have sex with him but her ability to choose who she wants to have sex with shut that off immediately when it's not becoming satisfying and again much like doc stay above it all on her own terms was really shocking and gratifying to me in a movie that I was really expecting like straw dogs level of sexual assault mm-hmm. and degradation out of. Yeah, I mean, you, you have the sense that she sort of has um, negotiated her place in this environment, which is not not a friendly environment at all. I mean, I, I, it's uh, it, it is it is kind of a co- complex character. I don't think of, I, I mean, ultimately, you know, a sad character, but but the film does not, as you say, go. Go where you almost are certain it's going to go with a character like that. We learn that she has a fairly experimental sexual relationship with Doc, kind of an open relationship that mm-hmm. he makes allusions to trying things, uh, which we don't really see except in in what I would assume is is John Grant's fever dream when he, when he's mixing both real and imagined uh, uh, moments from life there. 
That's certainly, I took it all to be his kind of fevered imagination of someone who was much more successful with Jeanette than he was, someone who didn't humiliate himself with Jeanette the way uh, he did. And somebody, uh, for both of the, the participants in that fever dream, just seemed very like hedonistically satisfied with themselves and each other, very comfortable in their skin in a way, again, I just don't think John Grant is. I Maybe that ending where he, he comes back and he's clean and shaved and brushed and he says he had the best vacation ever. Maybe really what he means by that is he's coming back to the place where he has power. He's coming back to the place where he knows the rules. He's he's coming back to the place where he's the smart one who is the teacher who people are supposed to look up to, as opposed to all of these different places where he doesn't have control and is not enough of a man for a, a woman and not enough of a man for men either. Huh. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, I, is it, does it seem tied in a way to, to where his relationship with Dawkins uh, winds up at the end though? And it, like just that, I mean, where they're both kind of well-dressed at the end and kind of, I don't know, there's something like, I mean, he definitely comes to kind of some kind of resolution about himself at that moment. But uh, I don't know, it's, it's a little mysterious. Uh, we were skipping past the, the rape, which happens at a particularly uh, low moment uh, in his visit to the Yaba, uh, obviously. I didn't see that coming beyond uh, also knowing that there was a rape in, in this film. What did you make of that moment? I mean, gosh, it's hard to say. I feel like, as I, as I keep saying, I, I just don't think John knows who he is. I think he keeps trying to please people, and he keeps either getting taken advantage of or finding himself in situations where he just hasn't correctly negotiated what the rules are. The, the sequence where he he thinks he's managed to successfully negotiate a truck driver into dropping him off in Sydney and the man actually drops him off in the city, which is to say back in the Yaba, is so darkly hilarious but just so indicative of somebody who isn't paying the right kinds of attention and keeps getting himself in over his head. And then is mostly successful at laughing at himself. But various things happen to him in this movie that he can't laugh off and that I, th I think he ultimately doesn't know what to do with. And the whole business with Doc just strikes me as a, yet another case where somebody else knows the rules better than he does. Somebody else has more control over the situation and more control over himself while inebriated than John does. And, it, you know, it, it goes to a place where once again, you know, as as when he loses all of his money, as when he finds himself in the wrong town, as when he tries to have sex with a woman who wants to have sex with him and ends up just barfing everywhere. He's out of control. He's not in charge. And he feels humiliated and denigrated. But it's he also, I think, keeps recognizing that he keeps putting himself in these situations. And there's almost more revulsion at himself than revulsion at Doc, like revulsion at the situation. And once again, the way he's been lowered in a way that he, he can't look down on everything, which he keeps trying to do. And then just the his legs keep getting kicked out from under him. That's how I read it, anyway. It's this is uh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the the rock bottom of the whole 
of the whole journey and it, it, it's, it's a way it's the aftermath that that becomes more interesting too i mean like there, there's a, a i think a pretty crucial scene where he's hitchhiking and uh and a guy it drops him off and is like demanding that he have a beer with him and he just he for, <laughs> absolutely refuses to do it i mean like he's not going to get you know and he, he confronts him about the, this whole culture where you can just do anything you want but the only thing you can't do is refuse uh, to have a beer with somebody, and, uh, and and so that moment he does feel comfortable, you know, standing up for himself in a way that he ha- he hasn't for the entire uh, period of time that he's been, uh, you know, in this area. I feel like that's one of the lines in the movie, alongside all the little devils are proud of hell, that just kind of made everything snap into focus for me. I feel like so much of the behavior we see in this movie is about the the Yabas kind of like mocking the outsider, but also seeking validation from him. And the constant culture of come and do this thing with me, where if he refuses, he gets mocked and, and tormented. And if he gives in, he's suddenly everybody's best friend. Just to me, keeps speaking of an environment where everybody wants their choices validated. And if they can have them validated by someone who is younger and more attractive and more sophisticated and more intellectual than them, all the better. I mean, we haven't really said anything about the fact that Gary Bond looks an awful lot like, honestly, Robert Redford with maybe a touch of uh, a young Peter O'Toole. He's just, mm. his. he has really interesting eyes and just really smooth skin. And we get that like full back and then full frontal nudity sequence where he's trying to beat the heat, but he's also just sort of showing off to the camera how like young and fit he is. And all of these things kind of make him stand out in this culture. They also apparently, you know, make him a, a target for predators in a lot of different ways, including to Doc. I mean, he's a mark from the moment he enters town. I mean, I think he's recognized as being different. I don't think I don't as being an, an outsider instantly by Jock and and that and he's sort of catapulted in this journey. I mean, I you know though though I mean at a certain point early, you know, he becomes responsible for for this as well. I mean, he, you know, there's a moment in his in his hotel where he's coming where he's come back with all of these winnings that he's he's made in in gambling where he could just leave town and have the you know and have it with tons of money and have maybe had a pretty good time you know <laughs> a pretty f- fun night out on the town uh, all, all told and and uh then he ends up losing everything but um the one shot of his backside if i recall is a cut is, is like a really cool like cut from when he lost, he loses everything. He loses everything, and then you get that cut of him face down, right? Mm-hmm. Naked yeah. in his bed. Yep. Yep. Uh, which is, which I think is a, a pretty great moment. If you just, you're done. <laughs> you're, you're flat broke. Bond's really good in this too, and and um, it really is his last major film role. He was very active in theater and appeared on television, but but it's, uh, I really can't the the attitude of condescension that that he that he uh, uh, embodies here in these early scenes is just so perfect. I mean, this, this is a guy who's setting himself up for, um, for fall and, 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 and fall he does. And he has that look, he has a look. I mean, he gets, a, he does change though. He does kind of develop that lustiness, you know, that, that he, gets he, into he it. does go, he does go native. Yeah. 
Well, I think when he's not thinking about condescension and separation and superiority, when he when he lets himself go into it, he has a good time. But then, you know, as soon as his as soon as his superego comes back into into play, he looks back at what he's done and he he always seems disgusted. Let me ask you this. Maybe there's something that you've read about this, or maybe it's just something we can talk about. But do you think that either Doc or Ted Kotcheff, the director, thought of this as a rape? You know, this this isn't a, a deliverance style experience. This is something that happens mm. between two very drunken men. And like within the context of the film, there's certainly an argument that it's just yet another thing where somebody else expected him to go along for the ride. And then he, you know, looked back on things like from our from our modern perspective about consent, we would certainly call it a rape. I'm not sure that it necessarily would have been seen that way in 1971. And I'm not sure whether in 1971, they would have seen Doc as like a predator attacking or preying on a drunken man so much as a hedonist having drunken sex with his drunken friend and assuming that that it was okay. Like, I, I don't know. How do you read that scene? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because because I, I think it with our ideas of consent, I think of it as as a rape. And I think the film does too. But I think... The haziness about it is there intentionally. Like perhaps it's it's depict a moment where where neither character is really sure what's going on, and things go too far for one of them in a way they're not comfortable with or or you know not consenting to. And and but I do think you're right. It's not a deliverance scene. It's not a straw dog scene. It's not. It's a little debatable. With I don't want to in any way diminish what it is, which is a rape. But there is some ambiguity in the way it's depicted. I mean, there's a massive amount of context for the for that moment that we've just seen in the movie. I mean, there's so much behavior that has led us to this moment. And then you also have the aftermath. I mean, I think there's a that, that you know, relationship isn't broken in a, a way. I mean, there's there there is this kind of I don't know, peace between them or there's a kind of a Doc moment does literally it, save his life, too. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's all very context dependent i think this movie because the movie does set this uh, a context of just, just sheer madness <laughs> and 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 also lawlessness of just of just uh, of all of the rules uh, of uh, that govern you know certainly polite society being just tossed out the window and everybody kind of making it making things up as they go along and and um and uh so so um and so it all has to kind of be be seen in the, in the context of the film sort of sets sets for it yeah, and I just I think that so much of the context of the film is about John giving himself over to things that he wants to remove himself from um, intellectually, and then turning around after they're over and and thinking like what what sort of animal are you turning me into, and that's sort of the context in which I I read this more than anything else is just sort of a feeling of he keeps letting other people tell him what he wants and who he is. And he keeps going along for the ride and he keeps regretting it almost immediately afterwards. Well, we'll be talking about this fascinating, confounding, <laughs> unforgettable film more in our next episode when we, we bring it in uh, to our discussion of the Royal Hotel. Uh, for now, we'll be right back after the break. 
now it's time for feedback. But before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh have released an episode that covers, among other things, Wes Anderson's Roald Dahl shorts on Netflix. I've watched those. How about you guys? Have you seen these? Just Henry Sugar. Mm-hmm. It's it's shameful. Like it, Netflix is just a, like what, what, what? It, it just is like it's gonna be there. I don't have to see it right away, even though it's you know a filmmaker I absolutely love and who whose work I I seek out at the earliest possible moment. So I don't get it. But I did watch Henry Sugar and and it with uh, my daughter, and we both had a great time with it. So I'm uh, looking forward to catching the next ones at my leisure. The other three are good too. There was a fire hose of new content. Uh, the, the first week in October, everybody wanted to drop their new horror movie. And I had a lot of stuff to cover. So I haven't gotten to it. Uh, Rodell was one of my favorite childhood authors to the point where when James and the Giant Peach came out, the ads for it said, your favorite childhood novel. And uh, a lot of people and I sort of laughed about that because it was one of my favorite childhood novels and nobody <laughs> else I knew had ever heard of it. So these should be up my alley, but I find myself a little reticent. I'm honestly getting a little weary of... Wes Anderson's increasingly mannered like removal from anything recognizable as human emotion. I'm not touching. And this. I've read so much about these, and just like how they're staged and and how like meta and like art based they are. I, I'll eventually watch them, but I I'm not rushing to them given the the humongous list of things I need to watch in the next week or two. It is a very audacious staging of these. I thought it was, I thought they're quite successful. There's there. Um, I'll just leave it at that for now. That's a whole other episode. As for feedback in one of our previous episodes, the one inspired by Under the Skin, we shared some thoughts on the best science fiction films of the 21st century, and we suspect that we get some more candidates. We did, in addition to suggesting Barbie would have made an interesting pairing with Robert Altman's Popeye, a neat idea that we did not think of. Ken from Wichita throws out one we didn't cover in the previous episode. Tasha. Can you read that? Sure. A special thanks to Tasha for her take on the best science fiction movies of the 21st century. Bravo for calling out two of my favorites, Everything Everywhere All at Once and Children of Men. But how about adding one more great Alfonso Cuaron movie that's exciting, but also explores humanity? Gravity. Let's get to that after reading the another suggestion we got, and we kind of talk about both films and perhaps some others we might have thought of. Scott, can you read the other suggestion that we received? Sure, okay. Uh, I wanted to add another film I believe deserves consideration for this category, Claire Denis' High Life. It's a grim, gritty, atmospheric film with a great concept, enigmatic presentation, and an appropriately apocalyptic ending with moments of great tenderness and sadness sprinkled throughout. I love it, but I feel like it's mostly ignored and or forgotten. It's a tough watch, and I'm in no way surprised it didn't make money, but I am surprised, a bit surprised it was, wasn't was more critically acclaimed and doesn't come up in discussions like the one you had on this episode. Am I alone in thinking this movie is great? No, you're not. You're not alone. You're not alone. But Ta- Tasha would say Tasha well, is uh, not a fan let, of this Let's picture. do this. I am going to, let's just hold a, a little, little, little vote here. Uh, who would vote for Gravity as one of the best science fiction films of the 21st century? I'd say yes with the footnote that, is it science fiction? Mm. What 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 do you think? It's like action or something? Well, it's just it's just so close to actual science. I don't know. Anyway, almost more almost an adventure, a thriller, but whatever. That's, we're just, that's we're, actually a reasonable question. I'm not sure that there's anything that happens in that movie. It's it, admittedly, I've not seen it since it came on the theaters, but you might have a point in that it might just be you know not not even so much near future as present. 
like with a, a slight edge of, you know, movie unreality to it. I mean, I, mean, I, I like Gravity a lot. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot seeing it in the theater. Uh, I think I saw it in an IMAX theater. I, I just remember getting like actual vertigo from some of the shots of the POV shots. As a technical achievement, it is exceptional for sure. I mean, it is a real experience. Though I, I almost feel like the kind of like as experiential like space movies go, I really like The Martian as well. So oh, I, yeah. I the Martian would be good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's I mean, that, 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 that's what that's one you can just kind of throw on any time. It's quite nice. Let's vote them both in. And what what about uh, what about High Life? <laughs> Do you want Tasha and I to argue for like an hour? We, we, the short version of High Life. Tasha says nay. I did not have an hour uh, of discussion of this movie in me. Um, nay for me. This movie is uh, not for me in a lot of ways. <laughs> Uh And uh, I had an experience around it that nobody particularly needs to hear about, but that has me uh, not particularly ever wanting to revisit it. Oh, dear. I mean, I, I I just saw it and I liked it. I mean, it's a Claire Denis movie. And it's to see her, just to see her introduce the idea of organic things and experiences in space, um, you know, just kind of defies uh what, what we think of, of of when we think of movies like you know other other science fiction fair she really kind of makes her own mark i'll say with high life so so i think it's a it's a it's a highly defensible film and i think uh there are enough claire denis tourists out there myself among them uh uh to to give this film some some solid long-term support because <laughs> it was you know it's not like people uh detested a movie like trouble every day when it came out and now it's you know a cult classic so uh, I'd, I'd hang in there i would advise the, our listener to hang in there this the, the film will survive uh, and do just fine yeah i'm a fan too um and i it's been i mean my memory was a little hazy but i remember being unexpectedly really moved by the ending and the, the sort of this idea that that our, our kids our kids might be the next generation. Our kids might be okay. They might even be even better than us. Um, you know, I, I I found it quite touching. So I, it's two yays, one nay. We'll, we'll just we'll just vote them all. Let's just be let's just vote them all. Let's be generous. They're all they're all in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> you all get a car, I guess, um, <laughs> <laughs> or a disintegrating spaceship. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. And if you have any more uh, the f- films to in- induct into the 21st Century Science Fiction Hi- a Hall of Fame, we're, we're open to suggestions. Uh, also, if you feel so inclined to reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That, for now, is it for the Next Picture Show, for this episode at least. In our next episode, we'll talk about the Royal Hotel, certainly a thematic twin in many ways to Wake and Fright. But we'll get to that next mirror week. Mirror image, a mirror, a mirror image. Sure, that too. Uh, look for that image next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, we're going to research hang over cures that don't involve eating kangaroo meat if there are any <laughs> <laughs>